0: From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Even though the worst-case projections of the Omicron wave haven't yet been realised, Australia's health system is buckling under the pressure. Thousands of healthcare workers are off work and surgeries, palliative care and mental health services are all feeling the strain, leaving hundreds of thousands of Australians with... Inadequate or interrupted care. Today, senior reporter for the Saturday paper, Rick Wharton, on the crisis in our health system and how our governments didn't see it coming. It's Monday, January 31. Rick, over the past week, it looks like COVID-19 case numbers have started to stabilise or even potentially decline across the country. There's some senior health officials, people like Victoria's Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton, who've said that it's likely that the peak number of Omicron cases has already occurred. So that sounds like good news. Yeah,
1: yeah, it does. And it it does look like case numbers might have peaked in Victoria and uh, in New South Wales, the Chief Health Officer there, Kerry Chant, is a bit more cautious, but we're still seeing some pretty positive signs. She's just warning us not to get ahead of ourselves. But we certainly aren't seeing the kind of dramatic growth in case numbers we were seeing earlier in the year. But that reduction in the growth of case numbers isn't as clear-cut as it might seem. So hospitalisation figures aren't dropping at the same rate, and that's mainly because the first surge of Omicron cases this year and over summer were largely amongst younger people, people in their 20s and 30s, you know, young people like us, right? The vast, vast majority of those cases didn't require hospitalisation. But now older Australians are making up a bigger chunk of our COVID cases, and as a result, hospitalisation numbers are remaining relatively high, and that means that we're definitely not out of the woods yet in terms of the pressure being placed on our healthcare system, which remains severe and is kind of just sitting there at this plateau at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're in year three of the pandemic now, Rick, and we are still hearing about our health system being in crisis. What does that actually look like, though, for a person who needs medical care right now?
1: Well, one area that has been hit pretty hard is what we call elective surgery. Now, the phrase makes it sound like it's optional, you know, people getting surgery for fun or because it's a choice. Uh, that is not case in many many instances elective surgery is about pretty fundamental stuff it's necessary surgery that is not immediately life-threatening Queensland is immediately suspending non-urgent elective surgeries across the state until at least march as omicron cases surge and right now across much of the country elective surgery has been frozen Uh, today uh, we're announcing that we will continue to suspend. Um, elective surgery for non-urgent surgeries, that's category... So those resources can be redeployed to helping patients with COVID um, or elsewhere in the hospital system where the strain has been felt. Victorian doctors are calling on the Andrews government to reveal a plan to restart elective surgery. It shouldn't be something we can turn on and turn off because this isn't unnecessary surgery. And that is having significant flow-on impacts for thousands of Australians on surgery waiting lists. And there's one Melbourne family I've been speaking to and and their story highlights this problem in a way that I'd rather it didn't highlight the problem, but here we are. And they were plunged into crisis when their young adult son suffered a traumatic brain injury after a skateboarding accident. This was in June last year, so June 2021. He underwent two rounds of emergency surgery to relieve bleeding on and around his brain he spent 11 days in intensive care and was then moved to an acquired brain injury unit. And after being finally released into care at home and with a third of his skull still sitting in a fridge at hospital, the man and his parents endured a long, often silent waiting game to find out when his cranioplasty surgery could be done. And all the while, he's suffering from these really, really severe headaches. He's got nausea he's sick, he can't eat properly, he's really unwell. And basically there's been CT scans had along the way which show that there's some fluid floating around there. So this was classified as an elective surgery category 2, which basically means it's not urgent, but it does need to be done within
0: 90 days. Mm, So what happened, Rick? Did he get surgery within the 90 days?
1: So for context, you know, he was in the public system He was at the alfred which is some of the best trauma specialists in the country and indeed they saved his life when he first had this injury but every time the family tried to book him in for this cranioplasty he got pushed back or they didn't get a firm answer so you know time was blowing out he was suffering these headaches and they just couldn't get him in even though he was supposed to be seen within 90 days i mean they were coming up on that 90 day threshold this year in january they didn't know what to do and you know, this is a pretty well-resourced family. They're not rich by any stretch of the imagination, but they're they're well-educated, they own a home, and they're struggling to make sense of this system. So eventually, because of one physician who basically told them, go to this private hospital, tell them about the headaches, I can do the surgery on the Sunday if you do that. So the family was lucky to get this spot. They paid $5,000 out of pocket after private health insurance to get this surgery done and when it was done the ct scan showed quite a lot more fluid on the brain than they had been led to believe and the surgeon actually said this should have been done six to eight weeks after he left hospital the first time around with the brain injury so in other words much sooner and this is one story i have been inundated with stories like this you know to the point where i actually couldn't keep up with all of the emails coming in when i put a call out on social media and it speaks to A hospital system that really is at crisis point.
0: We'll be back in a moment. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening.
1: For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like, you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then, like, the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Rick, we're talking about the state of Australia's hospital system, the crisis point that we've reached. And I wonder, is this situation, is this just the inevitable result of rising cases of Omicron or is there something else underpinning this? So
1: the really big issue here, as it has been all along, is staffing. And a lack of it.
0: 6,600 Victorian health service staff are unavailable to work after contracting COVID or being required to isolate as a close contact. At midnight, the Victorian ambulance service called a code red. For three hours, it did not have the staff to meet the extreme demand for medical care. So
1: in the New South Wales government's most recent weekly update that I had available when I was writing this story, there were more than 4,500 hospital and healthcare workers furloughed and in isolation because of community exposure or potential workplace exposure.
0: A leading Sydney hospital has offered its nursing staff cash incentives to cancel their annual leave to cope with critical staffing shortages caused by coronavirus.
1: That doesn't include aged care workers, by the way. This is acute care primary health workers. At the same time, there's thousands of patients in hospital with COVID in addition to the normal strain and stress that this system was already under before the pandemic even began. And, you know, there's been an almost unbelievable lack of preparation. And and, and that is what is ultimately behind our healthcare system, being at crisis point. And it's why hundreds of thousands of Australians have been left with inadequate or interrupted care. This is not just about people with COVID. This is not just about people having trouble in a hospital setting um, with or without COVID. This is about every other element that links into healthcare in this country. So elective surgery is just one part of it. But alcohol and drug services have been completely hobbled. Palliative care has been reduced to this kind of inhumane light touch where services can't see their clients who are dying in the community. Aged and disability care is suffering. Chronic disease management has been paused or reduced and that stuff adds up over time. Mental health services for people with moderate to high needs, it's almost impossible to access a psychologist and and of course, what we were discussing, necessary surgeries have been delayed. And all of this is really down to a failure to prepare. Now, it's it's really like policymakers in Australia thought we would never have to deal with the reality of the pandemic or, you know, this common theme over the years where it's like we've endured one wave of the virus and then we think everything's going to get back to normal. How many times have we heard, you know, the economy is bouncing back, we've passed through the worst of it, all of that stuff. And There's another story that I've been digging into that exemplifies all of this, I think, and it has to do with potentially life-saving treatment for COVID-19 that, despite being available around the world right now, still can't be accessed in Australia.
0: Okay, so tell me about the new treatment for COVID-19 and why it's not available here.
1: Okay, so on October 17 last year, the Health Minister Greg Hunt announced the federal government had secured... 500,000 units of... uh Pfizer's new oral antiviral, which can uh, be provided uh, early in the course of disease. 500,000 courses of Pfizer's oral antiviral tablet, Paxlibid. Uh, that's Paxlovid. Now, early clinical trials were quite promising for this drug, and they showed that it could dramatically slash hospitalisation rates among COVID-19 infected people with high-risk conditions, particularly among the unvaccinated, by the way. Now, after this deal, the new round of clinical trial data came out and it showed that this tablet that was developed by Pfizer could reduce hospitalisation and death by 89% from any cause compared to the placebo control in the um, patients in the study. So one observer told me that Paxlovid is the greatest weapon after vaccinations in the fight against COVID-19 on the front line and we don't have it.
0: So why not and when can we get it, Rick? So it's
1: complicated, of course. So according to the sources that I was speaking to for this piece, the first prescription of Paxlovid probably won't happen in Australia until early March. Now, the United States and Israel, they've been using Paxlovid for more than a month alongside a less effective oral pill from Merck. Now, neither drug has reached Australia. We have done a deal for 800,000 courses of both of them, 500,000 of Paxlovid, which is the far more effective one. But since December 1, we've had more than 1,200 deaths as a result of COVID-19 here in Australia since December 1. Um, in fact, that figure is even higher now as we speak. So with the vast majority of those deaths, they happened this month in January. And according to one source I spoke to, the unavailability of Paxilvid has meant that many people have died who otherwise wouldn't
0: have. Mm. So, Rick, we're in this situation where patients with COVID-19, they can't get the best possible treatment and The reasons for that remain unclear. But as a result, hospitalisations are remaining high and that's having this flow on effect into the rest of our healthcare system, which is impacting the quality of care that people can receive. It really does seem like things are at their worst point, despite the fact that we've had several years now to prepare for this.
1: It's an interesting point in time, actually, because... This is all happening at the same time that we are, of course, being told and, you know, people like myself are hoping that we can start to resume some sense of normality. And so there's this cognitive dissonance, I think, happening at the moment where it's like, but we were told everything was good, but then we've got, you know, some of the biggest numbers of people dying from COVID in a day since the pandemic happened. And we're double vaccinated. We've, we've got boosters coming. A lot of people have had theirs now. So, what do we do? Like, why is this happening now? Why is this happening to us? We did all the right things, right? And it's partly mismanagement of the Christmas period, of not adapting plans when the Omicron variant arrived in Australia. Paxlovid is a very effective drug. It would have been helpful to have had it. And that what we are seeing now is a kind of accumulative crisis. The healthcare workforce is running on empty and they're running on empty because we've endured, on the backs of workers who are underpaid by the way, we've endured the rolling crisis to a point. But the question now becomes how much longer can we do this without significant resources, without significant change? And we don't know what is going to happen next. There may be more waves, there may be more variants. Omicron happened pretty bloody quick. That's what we're seeing, it's a problem uh, of imagination I think over a couple of years now where at every turn it seems like we're just we're playing catch up and it's it's not good enough anymore.
0: Mm. Rick, thank you as always for your time.
1: Thanks Ruby, thank you for having me. Winnie Dunn has made a career out of helping others find their literary voice, and now it's her turn in the spotlight. This week on Read This, join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Winnie about her debut. Find it wherever you listen.
0: Also in the news today, the New South Wales Government has announced over $1 billion in economic support for businesses impacted by the Omicron wave this summer. The bulk of the spend will be focused on small businesses that lost 40% or more of their revenue in January. A support package for the performing arts sector was also announced. And the Ukrainian Tourism Board has urged potential holidaymakers to keep calm and visit the country. The Ukrainian government is seeking to reassure tourists, despite increasing tension with Russia, which has amassed 100,000 troops on its border. We'll be covering the situation in Ukraine later this week, so make sure you're following the show.